Welcome to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. As the first month of Donald Trump's presidency comes to an end, Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek's most recent podcast series provides updates on the new administration's impact on crucial issues facing businesses. Brownstein's strategic advisor, Senator Mark Begich, moderates bipartisan discussions with the firm's Washington, D.C. policy professionals and attorneys on tax and trade, financial services, immigration, energy, and health care. In this episode, policy directors Elizabeth Gore and John Robsky discuss issues facing the energy industry, including the use of the Congressional Review Act, the future of coal, tax reform, NAFTA, and infrastructure. Hi, this is Mark Baggage, former senator from Alaska. I'm a strategic advisor for Brownstein, and we're bringing you a series of podcasts on many of the issues that Congress will be dealing with. And not only will you hear about uh, the big topics, but what's happening behind the scenes and probably some information you haven't heard yet. So we're excited to bring these to you. We're joined by two individuals who work at Brownstein. The first one is John Robsky, is well-versed in the nuances and policy and politics that affect his clients, especially when it comes to offshore and onshore energy development, the Endangered Species Act, and environmental and natural resources. Prior to joining Brownstein, John served at the Department of Interior in the Office of the Secretary and the Deputy at the Offshore Oil and Gas Agency. Elizabeth Gore, Policy Director, also has joined us today, serves as Chair of the firm's Government Relations Department, and has more than 20 years of experience in democratic politics and advocacy. Elizabeth has served as Chief of Staff and Legislative Director to a U.S. Senator, worked extensively in both the House of Representatives and the Clinton White House, and played a key role in several political campaigns. Her expertise ranges on a variety of public policy issues, including energy and infrastructure. To both of you, thank you very much for being here. And, you know, Brownstein, as a firm, is lucky, uh, I think, to have both of you because you have a lot of experience. And, uh, John, when I read Endangered Species Act, this is probably the, the issue that comes up every two years. Does it exist? Does it not exist? Uh, what should be done with it? Uh, but when you think about energy policy for both of you, it's a big issue with this administration, the new incoming administration. And to be fair, it was also an issue with the last administration and more renewables, less on the conventional. This administration is leaning more toward oil and gas and conventional and coal uh, with maybe as not a strong emphasis on renewables. But saying that, there was a lot of regulation put in place over the last few years around oil and gas industry. And I guess we'll start first with there's a lot of action and activity in Congress uh, through the Congressional Review Act to see what they can reverse or eliminate in the sense of regulation. And maybe if I, John, then Elizabeth, maybe some comment on what do you see and how do you see that impacting in a positive and negative way? And then is that going to cause other problems down the road? Because that's just a 50 plus one vote. So it's going to be a lot of party vote, party Democrat versus Republican. So I'm curious your thoughts on that and how do you see that happening and what's happening in Congress? Well, thank you. Uh, the The first thing I think to think about is uh, with the Congressional Review Act, maybe the, the best example because it was signed by the, the president is the stream buffer rule. So this is a rule that during the entirety of the George W. Bush administration, so eight years, and the entirety of the Obama administration, the Office of Surface Mining at Interior worked on. 16 years. You know, for some people, that's all they've done for their right. the entirety of their <laughs> career. 
And that now just went out the window. When you think about what that means in terms of man hours that it took to put that together, that would likely be taken by the new administration to undo it. And instead of having to work spending a year plus trying to work on that rule, new administration gets to work affirmatively on their agenda as it relates to coal. Uh, for that office. That, that's a huge undertaking. And then when you start adding some of these other um, legislative items on an agency-by-agency agency basis, really gives uh, the administration a strong leg up to be able to do something. And so I, I personally don't think that it can be understated from their standpoint just how big of a deal this is. Do you think when you see these regulations, you know, it takes 16 years. I mean, I, the, the, if you're the general public, and even I would say this, that 16 years, it takes that long to write the rule. Maybe you don't need the rule. Well, I, Elizabeth think, kinda, I would think part of it is you had two administrations that came at it from two different perspectives. So it's not as though this was a linear path. This particular rule that John talked about, you know, was headed in one direction. And when the administration changed, it headed in a very different direction. So um, I think that uh, that's part of the length of time that was involved. But, you know, you make a fair point. Maybe it wasn't needed. One thing I would say about the Congressional Review Act is it's a relatively arcane, very unusual process. It only works under certain circumstances. This administration has been working with its Republican allies in the Congress to be very aggressive in their use of it. I think that John is correct that it has made a big difference in terms of sort of clearing the decks on some of the regulatory issues that this administration uh, doesn't want to support. But I would also say it's unclear about what the tail to this is going to be, because part of the Congressional Review Act is that new rules in the same issue area can't be proposed. So, um, for example, if you decide that you want to change the way that the methane rule is, you can't change it. If you get rid of it through the Congressional Review Act, it's gone, and you can't repropose something that is substantially similar, or I believe is, is that the forever or for a timetable? It's, it's forever until you've got until another you act of action. Congress. Right. Correct. And so, one of the things that's going to be interesting is whether um, there are changes that, that have a longer lasting impact than we may even recognize as we sit here today. I think most people may not realize that last piece you just said, that once a rule is kicked out, that there's not an ability to come back. Even if you thought you're kicking it out, but there's a better way to do it, doesn't matter. The better way can't happen That's unless right. you do legislative action. And now it's true that this issue has not been tested in the courts. So maybe there's going to be a challenge to it, but certainly not during this administration. And so um, I think that the uh, long-lasting ramifications of some of these CRA efforts is still a little bit unknown. Is there something on, on the CRA efforts that... You know, there's there's so much time now. You know, there's only been, uh, you know, literally uh, less than a month since this new president's come in. So that means there are still uh, Obama regulations and rules that have been put in place. But at a certain point, it's really not going to be usable because the rules that are going to be starting to be put in place are by the Trump administration, unless Congress thinks they're bad rules, right? So there, is there a period that kind of that this will be very active, and then it kind of just filters out, John? Yeah, so the legislative uh, 
calendar works is specific for the CRA. It's 60 legislative days mm-hmm. after um, that rule has been put in place. So obviously every day Congress is in session, it backs up last year what can take place going forward. So you're right. At some point in the relative near future, CRA um, likely becomes an, a tool that's not going to be used very often. And it's hard to imagine, at least with the current um, congressional composition with Republican Senate, Republican House, that you're going to see it used against Trump administration rules. And let me kind of dive in now with some more on the energy issue, because obviously this has been used to, to assist in the energy issue. Is there we have now the Trump administration interested in oil and gas and coal as kind of their primary target. But I don't I think we could all agree that they're not saying that's the only thing. There's other energy sources they're willing. I think their issue is about more, you know, more domestic production of whatever that energy, more self-sufficiency, I should say, on American products. So do you think this is going to lead to more energy investment or are there is still is still there a wait and see in this process by the companies you know we we uh, here in Brownstein work with some obviously in the oil and gas industry we have a whole unit that deals with this uh, both lit, uh, legal as well as lobbying work do you think is there a wait and see or do you think people are very motivated and say okay great finally in their mind, they see more opportunities under this administration. What, what, what's the client talking about today, Elizabeth? And- well, I think some of the issues with respect to the energy sector have more to do with market forces than they do with the regulatory environment. And I think this is especially true when you talk about coal. The reason that there have been declines in the use of coal over the last several years in large part has to do with the low price of natural gas. I mean, that is the driving factor from my perspective. So the change in regulation, you know, maybe it changes the trajectory, the downward trajectory of coal use somewhat and makes it not so sharply downward. But I I don't believe that the change in any kind of regulation is going to create a big rebound for the use of coal domestically. And I I don't know anyone um, who has argued that there's going to be a, you know, a lot of new coal plants that are built um, when you have these regulatory changes. What do you think in – let's let's take coal, for example. He talked a lot about coal. He won West Virginia, right, in some of that area in that region by talking about coal and bringing back – Pennsylvania is actually a great, you know, know, western Pennsylvania and so forth about Mm -hmm. bringing back coal jobs. Uh, but as Elizabeth just laid out about the economics, which I, I think I agree with you as someone from an oil and gas state, it is about economics and gas contracts are 20-year deals, not one-year daily deals like coal. So these people are locking in for long term. Is there a connection between what the campaign said and now we're in this process of how does he – how does the Trump administration move forward on that commitment or is it uh, almost – you know, based on what Elizabeth just said, kind of a hard thing to com- get going. And why I say this, because in 2018, you do have a, it's kind of an interesting state. You have a Democratic senator who's running, who supports coal, and a president who supports coal, but may not be able to deliver. So what's the thinking? I mean, is coal kind of, again, kind of, re- are they motivated, excited, or are they, they recognize the reality and they're just hoping for some relief? What, what's the thinking in the coal industry? You know, I I don't have as strong of a feel about 
that industry as I do the oil and gas folks. I, I think I, I completely agree. It is really hard to turn that industry around, and that natural gas has had a massive impact on that industry. I also think that the investment time, um, as Elizabeth was talking about building new power plants, they're investing for 30-plus years. And these swings we see politically where we do have an administration that um, has said that they are pro-coal, you just as easily in four years could end up with an administration who's not. And so if you're making a 30-year investment, certainly one can understand why somebody would be a little leery about going forward on that front. I think that it likely, as Elizabeth said, the trajectory probably changes slightly, but I'm not certain that uh, it gets exactly what they're hoping for. But, uh, you know, they certainly are going to make a run, and the president certainly sounds committed to trying to do something on that front. On oil and gas industry, there's a couple things that are happening that are directly related but not highlighted as the main topic, tax reform and NAFTA. Uh, tax return because, as you know, always oil and gas taxes, tax policy, is always under attack in some ways of revenue. You know, they don't need it, take the money, put it to something else. Um, and then with NAFTA, it's the great question of, you know, is there a, is there a view from the oil and gas industry of what may or may not happen there? Can that make a benefit for them in developing oil resources off the coast of Mexico? So, Elizabeth, first on the tax issue, I mean, that... I know, at least from my experience, was always this. They had like five or six of these provisions that have been around for almost 100 years in some cases. Do you think that the oil and gas industry is going to be in a situation where they're going to be watching those again or they're not as concerned as in the past because the way the majorities are made up today? I think the oil and gas industry is in a stronger situation than they have been in recent years. They have a president that very much supports that industry They have a Congress that's generally going to be supportive of oil and gas um, interests. So I think as a general matter, it is true that those specific provisions are less vulnerable than they have been in other years. That said, there's a big push to try and simplify the tax code to bring down the overall corporate rate. And there are ongoing discussions about cleaning up the tax code, if you will. And um, so my view is that oil and gas industry would be well advised to continue to focus on this and to, to make, be their, vigilant about yeah, it, to to be. make their case. But I, I, I mean, I think at the end of the day, it's probably they're probably going to come out of this okay. But I also think um, you don't want a bunch of members of Congress or an administration to be cutting deals if you haven't already argued for why you think that um, the status quo is the right policy. Because there are some in the House, Republicans, the conservative, hardcore, you know, the the Freedom Caucus, who sees these as kind of giveaways. Absolutely. I mean, we've I, heard their conversation about this, and they see it as, why are we doing this? Absolutely. I think that there is a core group of people who have argued that this is corporate welfare or some other... Oddly um, enough, they can team with very liberal Democrats who think it's corporate welfare, and it could be an interesting you know, tax package, kind of like, okay, take two that usually never agree on anything, and maybe there is a moment here. No, I, I think that there are certainly scenarios that you can construct that would put these tax provisions at risk. I, I still believe 
that they are less at risk than they have been in other manifestations of tax reform. And I still believe that when we get to a bill signing, if we ever get to one, that those provisions are not going to be eliminated. But, Mark, you make the right point. I mean, this is an uncertain time, and there's a lot of different dynamics than we've had before Um, Certainly, this president has broken a lot of rules about the way that he makes policy and the way that he uh, interacts with the Congress. So I think that everybody, not just oil and gas, but um, everyone in the energy sector that is um, looking ahead should be engaging on this tax bill. What do you you think about the question I had about NAFTA? And is there... Does the energy sector, are they concerned about that, or is it a low priority? And I think of only, you know, Canada obviously has energy resource development, but Mexico seems to be the the target. Yeah, offshore Mexico uh, received some very large bids in their first round of, as you know, they privatized uh, that uh, industry and allowed uh, international competition. And so there's a number of uh, large, uh, familiar names, oil and gas companies that have uh, bid over there. So they do care quite a bit about the ability to continue to have free trade in the Americas. I think that is significant. Uh, and trade's a hot issue right now with the, with it, the president. So this is something is. that the industry is going to have to That's be, right. be diligent on to make sure that what they are experiencing now continues if they want that, if, as Mexico moves to more privatization of their energy industry. And it matters. Um, it really dovetails into the tax part you talked about because of the um, potential uh, tariffs or how the administration may choose to pay for tax reform uh, or how the Congress may. So it, it, they really are going to be looped together. And as you know, hailing from a oil and gas-rich uh, state, tax policy for that industry is probably more important than some of the regulatory items. And so um, it is going to be of massive significance going forward. Let me just mention one other thing sure. on NAFTA. You know, I think that um, NAFTA has created these integrated markets among uh, Canada, the United States, and Mexico. And that affects, you know, their supply chains. It affects all of the work that they do across the border. It affects... Um, From pipelines you know, the, to refineries exactly, to right. retail. So they're very integrated markets, and um, that's one of the issues that um, come up as we talk about unwinding NAFTA is the the, um, arrangements and the agreements that have been made based on this uh, market integration are substantial. They're very hard to unwind, and I think the energy industry is is right in the um, middle of that type of of conversation. Let me switch to uh, renewables. You know, we have a new administration, uh, renewables not really vocalized high on, the, high on the list them talking about it. But wh- where do you see it? Where do you see, um, you know, th- I know during the campaign, President Trump criticized some of the loan programs for solar. Some of the people key to his administration on the secretary level are tied close to the oil and gas industry. So what, where do you see renewable energy in this mix of this new administration? And do you think... Congress has an appetite if the administration doesn't, or maybe they both have appetite. John, Elizabeth, what, what's your... Well, I think that uh, both Secret- Secretary-designate uh, Zinke and Secretary-designate Perry, so for interior and energy respectively, at their confirmation hearings testified to being all of the above. They've got a track record uh, 
Perry as governor, Zinke in Congress, of being supportive of renewables. So I think individual projects, especially on interior lands that are going to need to get permitted, I, I think that that goes well. However, I think the industry needs to be their own advocate, and they need to go in and explain and some of the Trumpian uh, principles about jobs, American energy, using American manufacturing, that's significant. Um, and, and this industry can show that. They I mean, can. They show the they, growth. They've got a, they've got a record to be record. proud of, absolutely. Yeah. But they need to go in and not be defensive. Mm-hmm. And at Energy, Rick Perry from Texas has uh, – Texas has such uh, wind potential that continues to grow and – uh, the sector receives a lot of electricity from wind. So I don't think he's going to have an issue there. However, on the tax side, again, mm-hmm. is where some of these issues really kick in. And so when we talk about renewables, you almost have to bifurcate the issues because the fans of, sure, we're happy to have parity in terms of allowing activity. And I think that's where the, this administration is going to come down are going to come down on a different side, potentially, on what are we going to do with some of these tax credits going forward. And that's where the industry needs to be pretty aggressive on that front. You know, you think about all the tax credits that are in there. I mean, this is kind of unique to Brownstein, I would say, and that is we not only have a great energy sector team here, we also have a great tax team. And as we've just talked about, several of these issues cross over. And I think it's unique that we're able to do that. So when a client, let's say it's a wind energy group, comes into us, we're able to bring not just the energy piece of it, but the tax piece and meld it together and work as a team. And I think what you're describing, if you're going to be talking about energy, especially this year, it has a multifaceted approach. It's not just go to the Department of Energy, go to the Energy Committee. It's these other pieces. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, I think that's definitely true. And I think there's other pieces to it also. You mentioned trade. That's going to be a part of it. Um, I think John was referring to public land permitting. That's going to be a part of it. We have an infrastructure bill uh, coming up, and we may talk about that later. But I, I think that that is going to have an energy component to it that is going to be very significant. And so um, there are a number of uh, of issues that are cross-cutting that impact the energy industry um, as we look ahead to the to the next year or year and a half. Let's jump right in then and kind of close out on infrastructure. Infrastructure, everyone's talking about it. Everyone's talking about it in a campaign. Everyone loves building stuff. No one likes to pay for it, right? <laughs> it's kind of the, 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 the hidden secret. Everyone's like, oh, yeah, we love it. They nod and they wink, and then next thing you know, they go, "What? how much does it cost? And then suddenly everything kind of crumbles beneath their feet, literally. And so the, the, the question is, it sure seems like there's a, a lot of energy and excitement about infrastructure at all layers, governors, mayors, congressional, president. But it's almost like it came up. Haven't heard a word except some mumblings once in a while, and then they're off to, you know, a crisis after crisis and other things going on. Do you think there is going to be space this year that infrastructure? I'll start with you, Elizabeth, and that is that that's going to bust through here somehow, or is it just going to be, you know, the Democrats proposed I think a trillion dollar infrastructure plan. I think uh, President Trump wants a two trillion dollar plan. You know, it's kind of like who can bid the highest, but someone's going to have to pay for it. So do you think there's enough appetite on infrastructure? I mean, I think there's a demand, That's, but is there an appetite to do it? I think this infrastructure plan is going to happen. I'm not sure it's going to happen before the end of 2017. 
But I think it's going to be very different from what we've seen in the past. Traditionally, we have had significant federal grants that go out for specific roads, bridges, airports, seaports. They go to the states. They go to regions, sometimes to municipalities. And it is a cash-heavy expenditure on the, on the federal government side. I believe that this package that we're talking about might have a little bit of that, but it's going to be tax proposals, tax credits for people who are companies willing to enter into private-public partnerships. It's going to be regulatory relief. It's going to be streamlining of permitting or um, other administrative changes that make it easier for these projects to move forward. But it's not going to be the same kind of cash outlay that we have seen in the past. And I think there's going to be liberal accounting to get to the whatever number we decide we have to get to. And I think the real question... Call it dynamic scoring? That, well, or they're going to say, you know, we're going to do some regulatory relief, and that's worth $100 million to you, and that's going to go on the tally. But I think the real question becomes how effective are those policies in building infrastructure, making a difference in terms of job creation and efficiency, do these alternative approaches have the same effect as, you know, shoveling money out the door? And I I think that's unknown yet. I also think there's a lot of unknowns about how this is going to move forward. As we say, there's a lot of blank canvas on this uh, painting, and there's a lot of details yet to be filled in about how it's going to work and what the mix is going to be of different approaches. So um, we're very much in the preliminary stages. There's a lot of opportunity there. Not quite sure when or how it's going to get across the finish line. John, anything to add to that? I think definitionally the question that comes up is what is going to get to count as infrastructure? And I know that there has been rumblings around um, Congress that we should take a non-traditional view of that as well. For instance, as you are well aware, um, to build an oil and gas offshore platform is billions of dollars. Should that count as infrastructure? And you're going to have a crowd out there that's going to say yes. Mm -hmm. And so making sure that you are in the mix and advocating that what you're doing has an infrastructure basis to it, I think is going to be really important. And we could see some non-traditional, not just roads and bridges. And I think that that view is um, starting to take hold, at least uh, on the Hill and potentially in the administration. Yeah, and I would just say, uh, I agree with John. I think that there's going to be an effort to try and expand that definition. Uh, He uses the um, example of the oil rig uh, as does that count as um, as infrastructure? And there certainly are people on Capitol Hill that would say yes. There certainly are people on Capitol Hill that would say no. And so there is going to be a a um, debate about whether that's an appropriate um, use of infrastructure dollars. And maybe the definitional issue at the end of the day is just an accounting or a semantic issue. But um, I I think that uh, that will not be an easy conversation that's going to draw a lot of bipartisan support right off the bat. Well, I think about that issue and think it's certainly there would not be public dollars, but could some of the environmental laws that are associated with um, some of these industries take place 
for instance. No, the to, EPA and the whole exactly. issue of how you build a road, do you need a full EIS or is that's it right. EA only? So could you expand that to other uh Right now, the cap industries. on road construction, I think it's $10 million and under, you just have an EA. Yeah, that's exactly it, that right. NEPA ends up being a, a massive issue and getting NEPA waivers. And do you see that expand? I think that's where at least these other industries would look at this bill as potentially vehicles for that versus necessarily getting direct funding. Let me end on this comment. We're a little over time, but on infrastructure, because it's such a a big issue, I know the the, the demand is never going to end, right? The issue will be is are you in the mix, right? Because the demand of infrastructure. So one of the things that uh, we, and I say this in a collective way as with our clients, is always trying to keep them informed on kind of as, as for example, it may be a bill, but it's the definition that matters. In other words, like you said earlier, what's in, how are you, are you in that definition? Are you, like when your old boss uh, loved utility lines and building wherever he could, well, is that in, in the list? Is it, and that's where kind of the possibly, besides the money, the crux of the debate will be. So for us, with our clients and other people is to make sure they're well-informed on what that discussion is happening. Is that a fair analysis of... Absolutely. Because at the end of the day, you could have this very narrow description and big money, or you could have a very wide description, little money, and now you're really in a position of not doing all the work that could be done. Uh, absolutely. And to what Elizabeth was saying, let's, it's entirely possible we don't have an infrastructure package until 2018. The time to be talking is now. You can't uh, try to run in in the last minute and say, by the way, I want to make a tweak. As you know, the the staff are hard at work. Members are hard at work. And so um, absolutely, and getting in. um, So if a client came to us in March of 2018, we'd say, where have you been for the last year? We want you now (laughs) to have these conversations. Because if they're thinking about it, right, they should be. Talking to us now, not too late, right? Absolutely. That's a, yeah. yeah. Well, let me say this. First off, uh, great subject matter, energy, infrastructure, someone from Alaska. We love this stuff. Build it, drill it. You know, that's what we like to do. So uh, thank you both for helping on this podcast and giving some great information for the people that are listening. I think you gave some insight that hopefully will be valuable, and uh, hopefully they'll be calling us to ask for some more information. Thank great. you both. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. Visit www.bhfs.com for more information.